I invite you to open your Bible to Isaiah 55. Isaiah chapter 55. It should be right about in the middle. If you find yourself in the book of Psalms, turn to the right. And if you find yourself in Jeremiah or Ezekiel, turn left. And eventually you'll find it. Isaiah chapter 55. My sermon title today is The Feast of God. And I hope you see and sense an invitation in Isaiah 55 to come and dine at God's table. Hear the word of the Lord. Isaiah 55. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and a commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall be called, sorry, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you. Because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth, It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress, instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle, and it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. An invitation to come to the feast of God. Have you ever received an invitation that you can't refuse? So I think about uh, a couple years ago, just at this time over the summer, I was invited to come officiate uh, my friend John's wedding out in Salt Lake City. It was 
an invitation I couldn't refuse. Now, John and I go back. We played in a band together, and we became close friends because he was seeking the Lord, and the Lord had found me, and we were both in this excited spot of talking about God and the Bible and what's God doing in the world. He was trying to find his place in the world. Um, a few years later, he invites me to come officiate his wedding. What an excitement to speak God's word into his life. Now, there were some reasons to refuse the invitation. One, I never did a wedding before. It'd be my first time. Like, that's kind of intimidating, you know, especially with people like you don't know. I didn't know anyone there. And two, my wife's due date for our second daughter was like right within a week or two of this time. So it was like really close. And I'm going to Salt Lake. That's probably not smart, but it was an invitation I couldn't refuse. God was working in John's life, and I was invited to come and enjoy that with him and speak the word there. I hope you sense in Isaiah 55 an invitation that you cannot refuse, an invitation to the feast of God. This feast is a feast of everlasting love, a feast of absolute freedom, and a feast of all satisfying joy. And that will be the, the outline of how we look at things. A feast of everlasting love, absolute freedom, all satisfying joy. First, the feast of God is a feast of everlasting love. Everlasting love. As you can tell, first couple verses of, of uh, Isaiah 55, come, come, come. That's the invitation if you didn't get it yet. Come, come. So the question is, who's invited? Are you invited? Am I invited? Who's invited to this feast? The feast is for those who are in the East. Let me set the stage. So we're going to use the stage. We're going to use, we, bu we built this really big stage and I'm going to use the whole thing today. The stage, we're going to pretend this is north, south, east, west. I know it's not the right directions, but we're going to pretend. So let's set the stage. This invitation, come, you are in the East, come. Why are they in the east? In the beginning, Genesis 1, God creates a people for himself, a place and a people to dwell with him and enjoy all of his blessings. Genesis 2, he gives his people a garden of endless bliss, paradise it's called, Eden. And he says, man, woman, take, eat, enjoy the garden, enjoy my presence, enjoy my blessing. There's one thing. Don't touch that tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Everything else, though, is yours to enjoy. And what do you think they do? What would you do? Hmm, wonder what that tree's all about over there. Hmm. And they get a little greedy. They think God might be holding out on them. And so Eve goes over and takes the fruit from the forbidden tree and eats. And because of their sin, God does a few things. First, he curses the ground. Instead of the ground being this fruitful, blissful blessing to mankind, it fights against them and produces thorns and thistles. And then second, he sends them east. I'm doing this on purpose. So you get the separation. Do you see that? So God's blessing's over there. But Adam and Eve are right here. They're away from God's presence, away from his blessing. So what happens next? Genesis 4. This is where we've been in our sermon series. Genesis 4. Adam and Eve have a son, Abel. Another son, Cain. 
Abel pleases God. That's a highlight in the story. Cain is greedy. He's jealous. Why does my brother get the Lord's blessing? Why, does he get, why is God satisfied with him and not with me? And God says to Cain, watch out. That's sin knocking at your door trying to have you. What happens though? Cain, in his jealousy, kills his brother. He acts kind of like his mom back in the garden. He doesn't obey the voice of God. And what does God do? He sends Cain further east. So you see how we're getting further and further away from God. We're further east now from God. God's blessings over there. Paradise is over there. This is a city out here. This is a place where murderers live. Not blessing, that's curse. The story goes on. We find ourselves here in Isaiah 55. God's people, once again, are not listening. They're stubborn. They're stiff-necked, hard-headed, stuffed their ears, not listening to God. And because of that, God says to his people in prior chapters in Isaiah, I'm going to send you east again. You're going to go about as far east as you can go. So we'll get over here. This is Babylon. This is the far east. This is as far as you can get from God, from his blessing. Out here, this isn't a city where you live and thrive in. This is a place where you're burdened. You're a slave. That's what it's like to be away from God's presence. That's what it's like to be in the east. The east is a place of self-love, self-seeking, those who, don't not, who do not love God. It's a place of foolishness and pride, ignorance, deception, and shame. It's a place where you bear burdens and you never find relief. It's where you toil and strive and you never enjoy the fruit of your labor. You work and work and work and it never satisfies. It's a place where you only find decay, destruction, and death. We all find ourselves over there at times, one way or another. Some of you are there big time. You feel about as far from the Lord as you can, whether it be the sin you committed yesterday or the sins you've been committing your whole life. But all of us have this Eastern orientation, this Eastern bent at times. We are prone to wander. But to us who are in the East or even just leaning toward the East, God is saying, come, 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 come back to paradise come to me. What is he inviting us to? He is inviting us to his feast, his feast of everlasting love. Take a look at verse one. Now, the first word, if you have an ESV translation, it's going to say come. The first word in Hebrew is not come. The first word in Hebrew is like just an exclamation, like, hey, hey, come, come to the feast. Are you thirsty? Hey, pay attention. That's what that first word in there is. So it reads like this, hey, Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. God's voice comes. It travels to the ears of those in the east. He goes out of his way to reach out to them. And he invites the hungry to come and have their hunger filled and their thirst quenched. He offers them water. Why is water important? Because it's necessary for life. In the east, it's life-threatening all the time. But with God, there are waters of life that provide 24-7. He doesn't only offer water, though. He says, 
I'll give you wine and milk. I'm going to give you abundance, luxury. You've got to have cattle. You've got to have trees. You've got to have grapes to have that stuff. That's the stuff that makes you joyful. God offers that at his table too. He says, come, the one who has no money, come. Come buy it without money. It's a free feast. You think about in the church, we host a lot of things. We have care groups, we have potlucks, whatever it is. You know, when you're invited to somebody's house for dinner, invited to a party, whatever we always do, or at least the ladies are always doing this and the guys neglect this. I neglect this. What can we bring? What can we bring? What can I bring to share at the feast, right? God says, don't you bring anything. Don't bring anything other than your hunger and thirst. This whole thing is on me. I covered the bill. Verse 2. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Can you relate to that? You think about how much energy we exert in our lives. How many things we try to consume to collect, to hoard, thinking, oh, that's going to make our life good. We labor and labor, work our tail off, thinking we're going to find something that satisfies. We think we can find rest. But we always wake up the next day, the next year, the next week, whenever it might be, and we find ourselves hungry again. We find ourselves thirsty again, whether it be physically or in our souls. In the East, mankind's efforts are all wasted on empty pursuits. They never actually fill up. The pursuits in the East actually just act as an endless reminder of how hungry you actually are, how empty you are. I've been uh, going to counseling actually over the past year. It's been so good. It's been very therapeutic. It's been awesome leaving for my soul, just to be able to share things that I'm trying to process through. Recently, I was sharing with my counselor how I've, I've just sensed this competitive spirit in me. There's someone else I know who does something better than me, and I'm like, I just want to be so much better than him. And so he asked me the question, well, why do, why do you want to be better than him? Why, is it you, why are you so competitive against a brother? And I'm like, well, because I want to be, I want, I think I want to be better than him because then I want somebody to recognize me as better than him. Then he says, well, why, why does... Why do you want somebody to recognize you? I'm like, okay, why do I want somebody to recognize? Well, I guess because I want them to do something for me. Like maybe like promote me or like give me something or I don't know. I, I, like, and then he says, well, why do you want them to give you something? And eventually this line of why am I striving so hard? Why am I searching for fullness through being better than my brother? I don't know what I'm searching for. So many of our efforts, do you feel this? where you work so hard and at the end of the day you're thinking, why did I work? What was I after at the end of the day? What was I chasing after? That's what God is telling us. Why do you spend your money? Why do you labor for things that don't satisfy? Halfway through verse 2 into 3, the metaphor of the food transforms into the reality of what the feast, what's the substance of the feast. He says, come and hear Come and hear. So I want you to see this. The feast that you're invited to in Isaiah 55 is the feast of God's voice. God's word is life. God's word is abundance like wine and milk. God's word is fullness. So he says this. Listen diligently to me. Incline your ear. Come to me. Hear that your soul may live. 
The feast is to be consumed by our ears, and it feeds our souls. To eat is to delight in what God says. We know that God's voice is rich food. Deuteronomy 8.3, man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So the question should be asked, so what are we going to hear? What is so feasty about God's voice? It's that he's saying to you, come and I will love you. It's the thing we all want to hear. What everybody wants in life is just somebody to say, I love you. I love you. I cherish you. You are mine. That's the feast of God's word. Halfway through verse 3, I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Now this, this is written to God's people, the Israelites. By extension, we hear God's voice to us. I will make with you, God's people, my people, I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my sure, steadfast love for David. So hundreds of years prior to this, God makes a promise to King David and he says this, I will make of you a people, I will make of you a kingdom, and here's the key, my steadfast love will not depart from you. You can count on it. I will always love you. My commitment to you will be unbroken. That is security. That's rest. That's joy. So what he says to his people here in verse three, as I promised David's house, a sure and satisfying kingdom, so I promise you. As I promised David's house, my love, so I promise you, my love. The word that God speaks to us is, I will be your God, you shall be my people, and I will be, sorry, and I will love you with an everlasting love. This is as simple as, like on a wedding day, it's as if God is saying, I do. I take you to be my bride. I take you. I will have you. I will hold you. I will cherish you. Sickness and in health. God is saying, I take you. Now ultimately, friends, this feast that we're invited to, to hear from God, is a feast of feasting on God himself. God is offering you the feast of himself. His eternal love is yours to delight in, to live by, and to enjoy. So I say, why, why don't we come to the feast? Let's go to the feast. You were created for relationship. You were created to love and to be loved. Like I said, this is the thing, like all, like all songs we write have a hint of this. There's some kind of longing. We want love. We want to love something or we want to be loved. All of our endless toiling and striving for value, self-worth, meaning, purpose, and affirmation is a testimony to God's design that you are a being meant to be loved. However, we look for love in the wrong place. You're not going to find it in the East. You're not going to find it apart from God. What's over there is self-love, misdirected love, corrupt love, and all that is just ultimately evil and hatred. That's what's over there. But God is calling. Come, son or daughter, come back. Search no more. Labor no more. Leave the burden in the east and come home. There is everlasting love here for you. The feast of God is a feast of everlasting love.
The feast of God is also a feast of absolute freedom. Absolute freedom. So if we're supposed to come to God, he says, we're supposed to come, how do we do that? Verse 6, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Why should we seek him? Because the east, we're just like burdened. We're weighed down. It's not fun to be the oppressed. It's not fun to be a slave. It's not fun to be at enmity with God. You think about, if you've ever been to like maybe a, a work party or just a dinner with somebody for the first time you're meeting them. Maybe it's the first time you're meeting your spouse's parents. And the whole time at the meal, you're trying to be someone. You're trying to prove yourself. You're not actually enjoying the event. You're burdened by trying to receive their affirmation. You're trying to show yourself off to your boss, to your spouse's parents, maybe to your spouse, whatever it may be. You never actually enjoy the meal. You're just burdened by it, trying to work, work, work. The Israelites, they were driven east under the oppression of the Babylonians. And the conscious reminder of how they forsook God for cheap idols and weak pleasures. They were put in a place of burdens, put in a place of endless toil and work. No feasting in the east. There's times when we look on people who are apart from God and we think, boy, looks like they're having a fun time over there. That looks kind of nice. But it's just a facade. It's just a facade. As I think about the Psalms. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their wine and grain abound. Wine looks good. A party with some alcohol looks good. Having a lot of stuff might look good on the surface, but you can have an empty heart and a full house, a full life. The East is a place of burdens, weights, and unbearable loads on our souls. If you sense your misery, if you sense the demise that's in the East, and you hear these words from Isaiah, come, 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 don't miss the opportunity. That's what verse 6 is talking about. Don't miss out. Respond. God has drawn near. If you hear, come, God has drawn near to you. You didn't have to go to him. He came to you. He has drawn near. He has made himself available. Give up your ways. Give in to him. Notice from verse 6, there are times when God can be found, and it seems times when he cannot. Seek the Lord while he may be found. There are times where you may be so lost in your sin, so far from God, that you don't hear the word come. You're actually angry at God, and you're running from him. There are times when God makes himself near. Call upon him while he is near. Don't miss the, don't miss the opportunity. If you even have the slightest sense of his nearness, call out to him. We feel our burdens. We feel the weight of them. Feel like you can't move. Feel like you can't even call out, seek the Lord. How are you going to come to God when there is such an immeasurable weight on your soul? Take a look at the contrast that's made in verses 7 through 9. Our ways and God's ways. Our ways, God's ways. 7 and through 9, it says, Our ways... Mankind's ways, our ways are ways of wickedness, but God's ways are that of compassion. Our thoughts are thoughts of unrighteousness, but God's are of love. 
and forgiveness. You see, we've all racked up this incalculable debt to God. We just, like, you, you think about it, when you're in debt, you think, man, I gotta pay that off, how am I? And you, and you keep getting further and further into credit card debt. Then you have a car loan, then you have a house, what do you, you have all this debt, you say, how am I ever gonna pay? You got the school loans that are like $700,000 of school, and what is going on? You feel the burden of how am I going to pay this off? How am I going to find relief? With any crime, for justice to be met, a price must be paid. Our crimes are in hating God. We have forsaken the blessing of our presence, the blessing and presence of our maker for weak foundations of a city in the east. And yet, and yet, in verse 7, God offers us a full, abundant pardon. God offers you grace and compassion as a father does to his children. He says, come, receive my compassion. Come, receive my forgiveness. To come is to simply just forsake your self-love and to embrace God's compassion. To come is to admit your faults and your crimes against God and to embrace and receive his word. I forgive you. Now you think about, God says come. We all sense this at times. We're like, Man, life is hard. This is burdensome. I, I think I know God could probably grant me relief, but no, I'll, I'll, I'll try to do it on my own for a little while longer. There's this reluctance we have to come to God, the fountain of living waters. Again, in my counseling, one of the things that's been hardest for me to do, and, and my counselor's been encouraging me, work on this, work on this, is the simple thing, anybody who's been through this knows, is just to admit your weaknesses, to admit you have a problem. Like, I am weak. I can't accomplish everything I want to do. I don't have the time. I don't have the energy. That's really hard to say. It's really hard to, then to go to your wife and say, I think I'm a lot better of a husband than I actually am. I think I'm a lot better of a dad than I actually am. I need your help. That's hard to admit. That's our reluctance with God. God's saying, come, the relief is in admitting it because God then fills in all the gaps. Come to him, seek him. Do you remember how God says back in verse one how the feast is free? He says, come with no money. Come buy without money, without price. God's love is free. How does that work? It's because someone's paid down your debt. Someone's paid it in full. The reason why he can give a, an abundant pardon is because all of that shame and guilt is paid off. Two chapters earlier. If we could preach the whole book of Isaiah in a day, that'd be great. Come back, if, I don't know, another week. Two chapters earlier, Isaiah 53. Some of you know where this is, this is, but so Isaiah 55 is like the climax of a section from Isaiah 40 to 55 of how God's gonna bring his people back from the east. The last chapter of that is the invitation, Come. But everything before that is God explaining, here's how I'm going to bring you back from the east. And right in, at the end, he says, here's how. Because I know you're over there. You got burdens. You got sins to pay for. I have to be just. And God tells us about one who will pay for our sins. Isaiah 53, verse 5. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. 
later in, in verse 12, it talks about this one who's going to bear the sins of many. Bear the sins of many. Sounds like somebody we know, right? This is talking about Jesus. Jesus is the means of getting from the east to the feast. Because what separates is guilt, burdens. And what God says in Isaiah 53 is, Jesus is going to bear those off your back and onto his. Jesus' death on the cross, being cursed by God, was the death we deserved. That's how you paid off that debt. Since Jesus took the punishment for our sins, we have forgiveness of sins. We have abundant pardon, no fear of God's judgment. You see, God doesn't welcome the self-made to the feast. There's no room at the table for those who are full of themselves. Only the weak are welcomed. Only the humble invited. The empty are allowed to feast. Only those who can say to Jesus, thank you. I couldn't do what you did. God offers you himself. He serves you himself. Jesus did all the heavy lifting and you simply enjoy the fruits of his labor. Now in verse 10 and 11, we find out that this feast, you might be thinking, there's a lot of people in the east. I feel it in myself. I tend that way at times, a lot of the time. Is there anybody that's going to come to this feast? Will the feast be full? Or is God sending out his invitations in vain? You ever have that where like, you send the invitation, you don't get any RSVPs, and you think, is anyone coming to this thing? God does not send out invites in vain, verse 10 and 11. God is going to fill the banquet hall. God's word, his invitation, come, is effectual. It has a positive effect. It accomplishes its purpose. When God calls, people come. Jesus said something just like this in, in John 6, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. You want to know how God draws people to himself? He sends his word. He says, come, come. It's God's word that is his power to draw people to himself. Think about how effective God's word is. Just go through a few. God said to an empty void, let there be light. Light. Just immediate. It happens. God said to Abraham, go. And Abraham went. Jesus said, be healed. And the blind saw, and the lame walked, and the mute spoke. Jesus said to this raging storm, peace, be still. The wind and the waves ceased maybe most beautiful of all, Jesus said to a man, your sins are forgiven. The slate is wiped clean. In the moment, as the word goes out of his mouth, the slate is wiped clean. You see, God's work in Christ was effectual. After bearing our burdens on the cross, Jesus rose. Jesus rose from the dead. He's not dead forever. He is victorious in him is the freedom and the newness of life to come to God. He is our life. So as verse 10 and 11 say, just as rain come down with a purpose to water the earth, provide life for humanity, 
So God's word comes with a purpose, an intended end to give life. It gives life by people hearing it and like a feast, delighting in it, cherishing it, believing it. That's what I mean by delight. Believing it, trusting it, saying, I believe you. I'm going to come. You don't have to come to God with anything other than weakness and trust in his word. You ought not try to come to God with anything other than weakness and faith. If he says to you, if he says, as he does here, I will abundantly pardon, trust him. Trust him that you can be free in him. No burdens. He has overcome your enemy, death. He has overcome your wicked slave master, sin. Jesus is alive. He has carried your burdens and sorrows and buried them in the grave. You are free. No burdens left. No hindrances remain. No oppressors to hold you down. Absolute freedom. And all, all it takes is come, come. You who were slaves to sin and now free in Christ, you owe nothing to God. Come to his table. Come to the feast. The feast of God is a feast of everlasting love. That is God's commitment to protect you, to feed you, to sustain your soul. God's feast is a feast of absolute freedom. What does that mean? It means God has covered the entry fee. This is the best meal. It's the biggest feast ever, the greatest food ever. You don't have to do anything don't even worry about the outfit. He's going to provide you pure white robes. You're free to come and enjoy his love. Finally, finally, the feast of God is a feast of all-satisfying joy. The feast of God is a feast of all-satisfying joy. Now, at the core of our beings, we want to be happy. We want to be happy. Everyone wants to be happy. We want satisfaction. Maybe another way you could put it is we want fullness. Just like when you feel hungry or thirsty, you're like, oh, I need something. I want something. I want to be filled up. Our hearts hunger. Our hearts thirst. Our souls feel empty. They want to be full. We want to be complete. We don't want to be empty and feel like we're dying and dead. And sensing our emptiness, we are always hunting for something that might satisfy we seek it in the works of our hands, the things we produce, thinking, look at this thing I've made. That will make me happy because I am so brilliant. We seek it in the affirmation of others, right? You think about how you think, boy, somebody else saying something positive about me, that's going to fill me up, right? If everyone loves me, then I'll feel good, right? But you're always going to be lacking. You're always going to be looking for more. Now, you see, friends, God wants you to be happy too. God wants you to be happy. That's what he created you for, but, but he wants you to be happy in him. He is fullness. He is fullness. See, that's our problem. We're looking for it everywhere else except up. Ephesians 3, there's this prayer. It's beautiful. Uh, Ephesians 3.19. Paul prays for a church. I pray that you would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with, with all the fullness of God. God is fullness, and he can fill us up. So, in verse 12 and 13, we see a people 
get full and the party gets kicking. God calls to his people in the east and says, come, verse 12, and they come with haste, with joy and anticipation. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. That's the procession, the excitement, the journey from the east back to the garden, back to paradise with God. Isaiah 35 earlier in the book, says about the same event. Beautiful way of putting this. Isaiah 35, 10. The ransomed of the Lord, just think about that word ransomed, the ones who he bought back. That's Jesus' language, where Jesus buys us back. The ransomed of the Lord shall return and come with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Now the joy of the people of God, the procession coming from the east, is only amplified, it's heightened by all creation, right? The trees are clapping, mountains are singing, all of creation comes alive as God does this victorious work. Now if you remember back in Genesis 3, or the story of Adam and Eve, when they sin against God, creation gets cursed. Instead of being this excited blessing of beauty and favor to God's people, it becomes tough, hard, cursed, thorns and thistles. But in verse 13, Isaiah 55, 13, those thorns are going away and fruit trees are coming back, just like in the garden. Upon bringing his people back, God undoes the curse. He even frees creation to join in the joy of his victory and the satisfaction of his people. Not only will God and his people be at peace with one another, but creation, all of it, will be at peace with God and mankind. This is Isaiah language, the lion laying down with the lamb. The ground won't fight back anymore. Once again, it's going to produce fruit trees like Genesis that said that they were pleasing to the sight and good for food, for humanity to enjoy. This celebration, this party that is described as this climaxes at the end of Isaiah 55, this celebration is God's objective, his purpose in salvation. Why does God do anything? Why does God do anything? Jesus came, died, rose again toward this end, this party, this feast. All creation exists to that end, that end of his people rejoicing in him and all creation singing along. You see, God makes a feast of love and freedom that will satisfy you fully. In everything he does, God is aimed at giving you himself so that you would have absolute satisfaction in him. And in your satisfaction, he makes a name for himself. This is where the text ends, Isaiah 55, 13, halfway through. It shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. It, what's it? Well, first, just immediate, the tree's coming up. The ground's not cursed anymore, but the trees are beautiful. They're bearing fruit. We can enjoy this. 
Why did the trees come up? Well, you jump back one verse. The trees, all creation is coming alive because God's people are free and they're coming back to him with joy and peace. It is our satisfaction in God and the party, the celebration, the feast that surrounds that, that God's making a name for himself. Just think about so how, how we celebrate things or we love things. So the way we celebrate things, the way we love things, says something about its value. So you think about when we can't stop, you know, people can't stop talking about the latest gadget, the latest celebrity, the latest trend, the latest show, the latest viral uh, whatever, the latest viral thing. When we can't stop talking, we're like, oh man, check this thing out, or wow, that's so cool, look at this thing. We're ascribing value to that. We're drawing people's attention to those things. We're making a name for something. We're glorifying it at the end. But the satisfaction in gadgets, celebrities, trends, and viral things, those are not all satisfying. They fade. The satisfaction in in those things fade really quick. Like I think even if you had an iPhone that had an, an everlasting battery, it would still fade because they'd come up with some new color and it wouldn't satisfy, right? We'd always be wanting something new. We'd always be wanting something new. But what if, what if there was something or someone who could satisfy completely? What if there was someone of whom you could say without equivocation, there is nothing I desire beside you? What if you could say that about someone? What would that say about them? What kind of a name would that make for them? What would it say if you could say without hesitation, in your presence is fullness of joy? Fullness. Everything else, eh, I don't really care because in your presence, I'm full. Or this line, your love is better than life. What kind of a name would that make? What kind of a glory would that give to someone? That kind of name would be an eternal, praiseworthy, without competition kind of name. That would be a name above all names. That's what God's saying here. I'm going to make a name for myself because people are going to be so satisfied in me. What kind of glory would that make? That would be a glory without equal. It would be an infinite glory, a most attractive, beautiful glory. This is why God calls people to his feast and satisfies them with himself. He does it to glorify himself. He says, come, From the east, come, be happy, come and rest, enjoy my presence, enjoy my blessing to make a name for himself. That's the end for which God is working. I don't want you to miss that. The joy of those coming to God, along with all of creation's celebration, is what makes a name for the Lord. Since the love is an everlasting love, the joy will be everlasting joy, which means the glory party will never cease. Friends, the feast of God is ultimately for God. The feast of God is ultimately for God. And in that, you should rejoice. You should be really happy that God is so concerned about his name. God is most concerned about his name and therefore, he is most concerned with your satisfaction. He makes a name for himself by satisfying his people with himself. Let me say it again. God makes a name for himself by satisfying his people 
with himself. That's the nature of the feast. He's bringing you from the east so you can come and enjoy him. And as people come, as people celebrate, as all creation becomes new and fresh and alive, that is saying something about God. That is what God is after. Your gladness in him is his glory. Now this isn't foreign to us. So think about a husband, what he might say to a wife, and how you might glorify your wife, glorify your spouse, by saying something they do for you. So think about this line. You, dear, make me a better person. So I'm better, I'm better, me, me, me. Look how good, I feel better, I feel better, but it's only because of you. Think about how that glorifies, how that makes a name for your wife. Without her, I'm a worse person. Or this one, even just simple, you make me happy. I'm happy because of you. Without me, without you, I would lack. That's what it's like with God. We're saying, you make me a better person. You make me happy. You make me satisfied. Our joy in God is an everlasting memorial to his everlasting goodness and glory. Therefore, friends, come to the feast. If you hear his voice, come. Receive God's everlasting love. Experience absolute freedom and savor all satisfying joy in him. Now, I don't want you to miss it. So we're going to end with Jesus. If you don't know, Jesus is the full expression of God's love, of the freedom we can have, and of of God's all-satisfying joy. Jesus practically quotes Isaiah 55. If you didn't know this, hundreds of years after Isaiah 55 is written, Jesus shows up on the scene and basically says the exact same words of Isaiah 55, but about himself. He invites people to come to himself. Jesus is God in the flesh, inviting people to the feast. John 6, 27 and 29. Jesus says, do not work for the food that perishes. Do you see the Isaiah 55 where he says, why do you labor for that which doesn't satisfy? Why are you wasting all that? Jesus says, don't labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. And then the crowd asks, where's the bread? Where do I get this bread that leads the food that leads to eternal life? Where do I get that? And Jesus says, standing there. I mean, can you just imagine? He's standing there in the flesh, and these words come out of his mouth. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Come, everyone who is thirsty in spirit. Come, everyone who is weary and sad. Come to the fountain. There is fullness in Jesus, all that you're longing for. Come and be glad. Let us pray. Father, break down our stubborn hearts and our unwillingness to come to you and give us feet that are quick to run, hearts that cling to Jesus alone. Thank you for a feast that actually satisfies. Thank you for paying for it with Christ's blood. And thank you for the sweet invitation that brings us near. Amen.